Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a Cy Young Award winner and a five-time World Series champion. Currently a broadcast with the New York Yankees, the Yes Network, and he's also a member of that Sunday night broadcast crew. Ladies and gentlemen, David Cohn. David, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure, Brad. How's it going? It's going good. It's going good. It was good catching up with you a few days ago. Uh, for those of you listening to the Boone Podcast, I ran into David. I went up to see uh, my brother. Uh, rare time that I get to see him. He was in, in town playing the Angels, and and I got to catch up with David. And, and uh, I'm excited having you on today. All right. I want to talk the state of pitching in the game today as, as opposed to our time or, or your time. David and I kind of overlapped uh, times. I got the second half of his career. Uh, it was the first half of my career. I, I, we didn't face each other much, though. We were always in the other league. But uh, his, I, I remember 99, his, his Yankees whooped my brave, so I, I wasn't happy about that. Um, the state of pitching. I want to break it down from a pitcher's perspective, your perspective, which you do nightly. And I, I really enjoy listening to you guys. That's my favorite crew in the game. It's Paulie O'Neill, uh, yourself, and and uh, Michael Kay. It really is because in a day where as ex-players, and I know you've done this, you want to turn the volume down when we're watching a game. Uh, when you guys come on, I, re- I truly do enjoy your your uh, breakdowns. I just think that it's a good mix, and, and, and I enjoy it. Um, how good is the pitching today? I know velocity's up. That's the layman that everybody likes to talk about. But your overall view of pitching in 2023? Well, I, I, I think in terms of, of volume, Brad, I think they're developing a lot of uh, reliever types, maximum effort, uh, one or two inning type of pitchers. There's a lot more of those type of guys out there. And the velocity training guys are throwing weighted balls now. They're they're really chasing velocity and maximum effort. So those type of pitchers are 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 certainly enormous. There's a lot more of those types around in the game. Whereas there was you know in our time there was sort of a big fall off between the starting rotation and middle relief. And then you had some closers who were studs, maybe like Mariano Rivera or Rob Dibble or maybe the Nasty Boys with Cincinnati back in the day. But now you you see middle relievers throwing 95 plus. Their maximum effort as hard as they can, maybe just trying to hit the top of the zone. I think the, 
the craftsmanship is kind of maybe a little bit lost. Those starting pitchers that could go three times through the order that would throw 115, 120 pitches. So, you know, that's kind of a thing of the past nowadays. There's, there's a lot of guys that get, that go as hard as they can, as long as they can. And then they're looking for help from the bullpen. And there's a lot of those guys out there. Yeah, it is quite different. And, and even probably the very beginning of your uh, career, David, it was, it was almost like you were a starting pitcher. And if you were in the bullpen, that was like, that was a big demotion. Like the, the bullpen is for the guys that can't cut it as starters. And as you mentioned, today's climate, it, it's different. Guys are groomed to be relief guys. Like you said, one inning max effort, just come in and fire where you, they, they almost start the big arm start in the minor leagues to be relievers. I, I know the top pitchers when I was in the minor leagues, they were always starters always. And then, you know, things, Things parse out throughout their their career, and now maybe you're better suited as a bullpen guy. But all the top talent and all the guys that became bullpen guys, they were all starters at one point. Not necessarily the case anymore. It's so true, you know, and, and I think there's kind of a, a perfect storm where, where the entire game is chasing power, both on the hitting side and the pitching side. Everybody's, yeah. everybody's into power, right? And then that's impacted the game. And I think also an, another underrated facet, and I know you probably realize this too in our era, the strike zone has changed in my mind. The little white box you see in front of home plate for every broadcast has changed things. Uh, you, you know, my strike zone and your strike zone was more east and west. And if you threw a ball thigh high off the plate, you got a little margin there. Some umpires more than others, but certainly the, it was more of an east-west strike zone. And now it's more of a north-south. I put it, I sort of use like the iPhone equation. The, if you hold the iPhone straight up, that's the strike zone today. Our strike zone yep. was the other way. It was kind of more of an east and west strike zone. So the fact that they're calling higher strikes and higher curveballs, if you look at the top line of the box on television, on every broadcast, those high curveballs were never called in our era. We used to say, if you threw a ball right down the middle at the mask, the catcher caught the ball at the mask, that was a ball automatically back in the 90s and even late 80s. Nowadays, that's a strike, you know, without a doubt. And I think that's impacted swing and miss. When you have hitters chasing power, Swinging, maybe try to try to launch and get the ball in the air more with a higher strike zone and higher velocity from pitchers. That's why you see the strike zone, uh, the strike rate, strikeout rate rather so high in the major leagues right now. David, I think that's a great point. And I think as hitters in our day, we, we'd come to the plate and we knew the umpires. They, they, they had reputations. We knew the, the pitcher's umps and we knew the hitter's umps. And all we asked as hitters is establish your strike zone first time through the lineup and stick with that strike zone and we'll live with it. Um, and the great ones did that, you know, uh, there, there's always going to be the best in a, in a profession, in a field and, and the worst. And then there was a bunch of guys in the middle. We knew who the good guys were and the bad guys were the good guys. They really established that strike zone. And maybe it wasn't to my liking. Maybe it was a ball off the plate and, and low in the strike zone, but at least I knew with two strikes in a big situation, Hey, he's calling that pitch. I got to protect here. So that's, that's all I can. It's still the human element, and you can be as good as you could be, but you know, to the fans that sit there and have that luxury uh, of watching that little white box and can be an expert, try getting back there in the heat of the, the battle with 50,000 fans and make the perfect call every time. I almost feel bad for the umpires today because of the technology and how heavily they are scrutinized. Another thing you mentioned was that high curveball. You as a pitcher, I know, you throw that high curveball, it's got that late break, and you get it called a strike, you're laughing like, wow, I got away with that one. Because you know that's not a strike. To the hitter, if I'm up in the box, a curveball, get it from my point of view, 
it's way out of the strike zone. I don't care if it drops in at the last second. So the little factors like that, it's tough to, to equate them and whether they go to, to this electronic strike zone eventually, which it seems like it's trending in that direction. Uh, the one thing the hitters are going to get is they're kind of going to know what a strike is and what a strike isn't. I personally, from a purist standpoint, don't like that part of it, but it is what it is. We're going that direction. It seems like baseball's going that direction. Um, as you watch these games on a daily basis, you, there, there's always a cat and mouse with with the hitter and the pitcher. And this is where I really like talking the game. Um, as a pitcher, do you read body language? If Brett Boone comes to the plate, David Cohen, I'm going to be sitting on your slider and I'm going to sit on it all day. I'm going to sit that hole at bat. I'm selling out. And if you throw two heaters down the middle, I'm going to tip my cap. Now I'm going to battle you with two strikes. Did you used to look for stuff like, why did he take that pitch? How's his body? He didn't take that pitch right. He's looking for something else. Was that something David Cohn was thinking about when you were on the mound? Absolutely. Especially as, as I became more experienced, the latter part of my career with the Yankees, I really threw every pitch and immediately looked for feedback. There's feedback on every pitch, not only uh, from the hitter, but the umpire as well. I mean, there's all sorts of information that happened with every single pitch and not only that, but where was I trying to aim that pitch and where did it go? So I mean, there's all sorts of feedback in terms of my mechanics. Where am I off? How do I make a quick adjustment on the fly? What did the hitter do? How did he react? How did the umpire react? Did he flinch? Did he want to call that a strike? Did he call it a strike and then kind of second guess himself? You could read a lot, you know, from, from all of those sources uh, immediately. And the more experienced you are, the quicker you can sort of manufacture that or, or process that and make quicker adjustments on the fly. And I think that's the biggest difference between young pitchers and veteran pitchers is the ability to, to stay away from big innings and make those adjustments on the fly a lot quicker based on all that information and that feedback that you can get. And I think you're right. And it's the difference between elite pitchers and just run-of-the-mill pitchers. I talk to young hitters, and they ask about an approach, a mental approach. And I learned this as my career went on. But I think a, a, a lot about it. I said, my job as a hitter is to eliminate a pitch from a pitcher. If I can get one pitch out of your repertoire, I've done my job. It makes my, my job much easier. <clears throat> and I said, let me give you an example. Your first at bat, you take a fastball well-located away, and you – get a base hit to right field, just a clean single, two outs, didn't hurt the pitcher, but the pitcher's out there. And believe me, because I know you guys well enough, you're going, man, that's a good pitch I made. And he just treated it like it was nothing. Now for the average pitcher in the big leagues, I'm not talking about the veteran successful elite pitcher. I just eliminated fastball away. I'll guarantee you nine times out of 10, he's going to bust me in or he's going to try to trick me. That's playing right into my hands. Now, starting to play that game. I got a David, I got a veteran David Cone just because I did that. Doesn't mean he's eliminating fastball away. You know who used to do it to me is Boomer. David Wells. I'd hit a ball nine miles off David Wells and he'd come back next at bat and he'd throw me a four seam pass fastball right down the middle. I'd take it because I'm looking for <laughs> something else. He'd laugh at me. And I'd be like, David, what are you doing? You don't throw that pitch. He'd do it again. I'm 0-2. He's laughing, and I'm going, okay, that's that's the great part of, of the matchup that I don't hear enough about that I love talking. It's that between and, – and you mentioned it, not only the umpire. Who's catching today? What's he most likely to put down? Did he read that I'm sitting on breaking ball? Jason Veritek used to do it to me all the time. He'd say, 
I come up, bases loaded. I'm looking for a breaking ball. I don't think you're going to throw me a heater. Heater down the middle, I take it. Veritek kind of take his mask off, go, guess we're not looking for a fastball, Booney. Oh, no. <laughs> throw out my plan. Everything changes. How much did did you really engage in that? I mean, talk about how, how, how big that is in the game, that cat and mouse. Oh, it is huge. I mean, you, you, there, there's so many different layers to it as you peel it back and take a look under the hood. You know, am I tipping my pitches? Is there something telegraphically I'm doing? Do I slow down a little bit my body on a, on an off-speed pitch? And, you know, I, I was always paranoid about that sort of a thing. You know, does he know what's coming? Does he have something on me? Uh, and then secondarily, how's he taking the pitches? Is he setting me up? You know, Manny Ramirez was, you know, everybody talks about Manny being Manny. Manny was a pretty smart hitter. He would set me up. He would swing bad at a couple of my early sliders, like just wave out of it, make me think, you know, oh, wow, I, he can't hit my slide. He's not picking it up. And then later in the game, he'd be sitting on slider and he'd launch one on me. I'd, I'd end up leaving one up eventually. He was sitting on slider the whole time. He took a couple bad swings at sliders just to set me up early in the at-bat. And I actually confirmed this with him when I became a teammate of his in Boston later in my career. And he would just smile, and that was Manny being Manny. But Manny was a smart hitter, and that's a different level when you have hitters that, that think through at-bats, even maybe will give up an at-bat to try to set you up for later in the game. And uh, certainly, you know, that, that that's different level stuff. But I, I know you were that type of hitter, Brett, in terms of, you know, looking for pitches, eliminating pitches, how you took pitches. A take can tell you a lot about a hitter. Whether he's out on his front foot, did he start to bring his hands a little bit forward? Did he recognize the pitch, or is he sitting on something and uh, not even offering at it. So, yeah, so that, that's that's a big part of reading the body language is how hitters take pitches. I think you're right on on the Manny Ramirez thing. Manny Ramirez, he, he was one of the f- few guys that the second half of my career I based it on. I watched him. He was a genius in the batter's box because, like you said, he would set you up for later in the game. And he was he would he was unwavering with his the, the discipline to stay with it. And I remember talking and I know Jeff Nelson was a teammate of yours for a lot of years, teammate of mine in Seattle. And I used to tell Nelly and Arthur Rhodes, I'd say, listen, I know you think you got Manny. You're watching from the bullpen. Do not throw this pitch in this situation. I'm telling you when it's close in the eighth inning, he's going to be sitting on your neck. I said, do not fall for what, how he looked early in the game. Don't do it. This guy's the best. He's the best at, Having a plan, executing a plan, he never wavered. That's why you'd see him, you know, go back to home, uh, go back to the dugout with an 0-2 pitch. He'd take it down the middle and start laughing and walk back to the dugout. And and I'd say, don't, don't be fooled by it. Don't be fooled by it. But I, I think when you brought him up, that he's always my go-to. I said, it's Manny Ramirez. That's who I used to watch. And that's how I, the second half of my career, I kind of patterned myself after him. Um <clears throat> On the yes, on the yes network, and I listen all the time. You'll you'll bust out fan graphs. How how has sabermetrics changed the game? Well, I, I you know certainly you know people sort of say you know you want to lump analytics or sabermetrics all under one umbrella, and there's completely different subsets of each. Now, you know fan graphs, you know it's just the accumulation of what happens on the field. A lot of times, it's a, you know. How many, how many pitches did you throw out of the strike zone? How many pitches did they swing at it? The outside the zone rate. I mean, there's just a, a lot of information, much more than, than we had. You know, I, I used to keep the chart. Starting the, as a starting pitcher the day before, you keep the chart on the bench. And it was just rudimentary. You know, it was just basic stuff. You know, maybe location, but 
type of pitch? Did he swing or not? Did he hit a ground ball or fly ball? That's it. That's all the information we had. Now you've got every bit of information of every pitch thrown in the game. You can use that to your advantage, but it's just accumulated information. Now, if we're getting into theory on whether you should bunt anymore, then the, you know, the, the sacrifice bunt, is that uh, something that should be a part of the game anymore? And then now you're getting into theory. And then when you get into analytics on the high-speed cameras evaluating the spin of, of a slider, that's another different subset. You know, that's something I would have been really interested in, the spin on my slider, you know, the efficiency, the access. Let me study the spin. How can I improve it? Let me tweak my grip. Let me get instant feedback. I would have loved that kind of information, throwing on the side, developing pitches. Pitch design is a whole different subset of analytics. Now, if you want to d discuss baseball theory, that's a different thing. The stolen base, uh, the bunt. The, the style of play, um, you know, the difference between a high baseball average and a high on base percentage, you know, okay, that, that's, a, that's a different thing we can discuss all day long about the theory of baseball, but the actual use of high-speed cameras and, and, the, and the actual use from the hitter side too, uh, there's, there's high-speed pitching machines now that, that can uh, sort of, uh, you know, give you the exact release point and the exact spin of, of any pitcher in the big leagues now. So if, you, if you're facing Pedro Martinez, there's a pitching machine out there now that's based in Canada uh, that, that can show you exactly how, pay, you know, the, the speed, the break the, that Pedro Martinez had in his day. And uh, that's how you can prepare now on high-speed pitching machines. So some of the technology I'm, I'm awed by and, and some of the theories, I think, uh, you know, I still think there, there's room for debate and to be able to question the style of play. What's more entertaining? You know, is it more entertaining to have a shift where ground balls are hit right at infielders as years passed? Or do you want a lack of a shift where infielders have to die if you've got more action? So sometimes being uber efficient with analytics is less entertaining. So that's kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? Have we made the game less entertaining by trying to be so uber efficient with taking the starting pitcher out two times through the order or doing an opener pitcher strategy or the lack of a bunt or the lack of action on the field. Uh, you know, that that's certainly a big debate. I'm, I'm willing to debate that all day long, but I think you have to educate yourself on those parts of the game in order to push back. You can't just be one of those ex players that says, you know, get off my lawn, you know, analytics is ruining the game. Well, which part, wait a minute, let's talk about this. Yeah. And th there's a debate that be had there, but, wait a minute, you know, uh, how much do you really understand about what you're poo-pooing, you know, what, what you're discarding completely, and you really have to understand it, educate yourself in order to push back and say, hey, wait a minute, this is what they're trying to do here. Here's what the analysts are saying. Starting pitchers can't go three times through the order. Well, wait a minute, you know, let's give him a chance. Let's, okay, why can't he? Let's develop a way to, to, to help starting pitchers get their three times through the order. What are they doing wrong? What do we have to do to improve that area rather than just to sort of mandate, hey, every time this starting pitcher gets the third time through the order, we got to bring in a reliever. That's so true. And I'm getting to a point, too. A few years ago, I was kind of that older player. Like, what's this analytics stuff? But now I've kind of bought into it, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. As a player, I was one of those info freaks. Give me everything you can give me. I'll decipher it. I'll use what I'll use. I'll discard what I discard. But I, I do the the X player when he just comes and oh our game was better. This is don't yeah I can hear that all day. Tell me what you would do to make it better. I think in today's I, I would be a kid in a candy store with all this data. Just give me just pour it into my room the night before I face the Yankees in a four game set. 
give me everything you got. I'll sit there and I want to watch every relief pitcher, what he's done the last week, last time I faced him. We used to have, and and David, you remember this, before a game, usually if you were lucky, you'd get the, the starter that was pitching that night, be playing on a loop in the clubhouse, and maybe his last start, maybe. And that's all we had. You know, and then I've got to kind of go back into the memory bank, see if I can find any any film on the last time I faced him individually, formulate a plan for that day, and that's how we go. Uh, I had Trevor Bauer on the on the pro, who's an analytical. That's that's all he does his whole life. But he but he told me this, and it was interesting. He said, "Booney, too much information in the in the wrong hands can also be a detriment." And I thought that was really interesting. I, I look at young hitters. Uh, in the minor leagues prospects and, and all these different measuring points they have for them. I think that can be overwhelming to a young player as a young player. We just want to prove that we belong, that we can be a big league player. And you've got constantly, what was my exit below? What was this and that? Sometimes that doesn't matter. It's, it's good ABs and we get caught up in, Oh, my exit below is in here. So I'm not going to go to double a out of a ball when, when you're getting out of that, Man, it's just you got to have good at bats and learn this game and learn how to be a big league player. Not worry about how hard you're hitting it. And, and I don't know. I I just see sometimes you talk about the power game now on the offensive side. Everybody's not born a power hitter. I don't care what you do. Walt Weiss and Omar Vizquel aren't going to be 25 home run guys, but they played huge roles in in on on their teams for for decades. So I worry a little bit about that. But at the same time, uh, the data for me, it's unbelievable. I think it's positive if used correctly. Absolutely. I mean, you think about it, Brett, before a game, you'd have your own iPad and you're facing me. You'd have every career at bat against me and you could see it in two seconds almost. I mean, your your preparation work, you get so much more information so much quicker and more efficiently that would help you prepare. Not only that. You you would have an iPad on. Okay, here's your here's your career at bats against against me, and also here's similar hitters to you against him as well. So here's how he got out similar right-handed hitters to you across the league over the last six months. You could look through about a hundred at bats in fifteen minutes, maybe 10, 10 minutes, and have all that just processed visually on an iPad in your locker, and you'd 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 be off into getting your pregame meal or doing whatever your pregame routine was. You'd get your information so much quicker and so much more efficiently. It would just help you prepare. You could have as much as you wanted. Like you said, some guys can handle information. Some guys can't. you got to know which ones they are. And the ones who need it, like you, if you want more information, here it is. But it's delivered to you in such, such a quicker, more efficient way that you can have as much as you want. Uh, you can say, Hey, wait a minute. This guy got out. Uh, you know, this is how he pitched Manny Ramirez. This is how he pitched Brett Boone. This is how he pitched Robin Yount. This is how he went after Paul Molitor. You could have all those at bats and see him and, and say, okay, this is a tendency on two Oh, he's going to drop a slider in there. He's not going to throw in fastball counts. He's going to pitch backwards to these guys, or these, these are the times he will give in and throw his fastball and fastball counts. You could have that information right now and, and just process it so much quicker and be, some, you know, like you said, we had to go digging for information back in the day. Yeah. We had we had to really dig, and we were you were limited. And you, you know, even if you were you were lucky, if you trusted your advanced scouts, because those were all written reports, you know, and those were high and tight, low and away, old scouts, you know, high and tight, low and away, you know. I mean, it was there were there was a classic kind of typical uh, way that those those old time scouts wrote their their written advanced scouting reports on on teams they had just seen. So. 
you know, they, they became a little redundant, you know, and then some for guys like you, it probably wasn't enough and you needed more and wanted more. And today you could get a lot more. And not only that, you could get certainly the tendencies of the pitcher, but you could also get the tendencies of the catcher, what the catcher calls too. Mm -hmm. And well, then obviously the umpire, the ten important. tendencies of the umpires too, you know, down to a T. So, uh, yeah, all that information is there for you. I think it's, it's fantastic. Um, I would have loved to have that information too on hitters, you know, as a starting pitcher, you got plenty of time to, to prepare before a game or even three or four days. So yeah, I could look at all those at bats I had against you. I, you might not remember, you know, how many times did I face Brett Boone in my career? Okay. I've got 17 at bats or 25 at bats. I could see them all right now quickly yeah. within five minutes and, and visually see that that's just a tremendous advantage for today's players. I, I, I used to go a step deeper and Ed, Edgar Martinez, he's, he, he hit behind me most of the time uh, later in my career. I'd have a meeting with him meeting before the meeting. I'd say, all right, now, Edgar, <clears throat> we got Coney tonight. What's your history? What's your history with David? Well, ah, you know, I haven't done much off him or, Hey, I really hit Coney. Well, now I'm just saying that that's a hypothetical that formulates my evening because now I know if I come up in a situation and David Cohn, uh, let's say Edgar's got a lot of hits off you. Well, I'm thinking Coney's thinking, well, he's going to go after Booney because he doesn't want to deal with Edgar because Edgar's had a lot of success. That formulates my plan as a hitter going, okay, I got to be ready now. He might be a little more aggressive with me. Now, if the, if the scenario is reversed <clears throat> and I've hit David Cohn really well, well, he might pitch around me a little bit here because he's had some success with the guy on on deck i mean i think i i used to go that far and so that would even help me more now because we'd have that data for him i'd be watching his tapes against the tonight starting pitcher i i think it's fascinating i could talk about this all day yeah, um, it, it's true it's so true you know and diversity is a big deal too i mean you know that the, we seem to be cloning pitchers and cloning hitters in terms of stylistically speaking and the toughest lineups i faced were the ones that were more diverse Lefty, righty, a guy that was more of a contact-oriented hitter, a right-handed hitter that was more pop-oriented, that was trying to take me deep. If I had to bounce back and forth with stylistically, uh, that gave me more trouble up and down a lineup as opposed to a, you know, give me a Conseco, McGuire, and a bunch of right-handed hitters that are all thump-oriented. I'm going to get in a groove and get my slider going. I'm going to like facing those guys a lot more than I would the bounce back and forth. You know, it, it, you know, different styles of hitter, especially platoon wise, lefty, righty, lefty, righty. I think we've kind of lost the value of diversity in, in pitching staffs, too. I, I'm pitching for the Mets back in the 80s. Posing hitters told me all the time the, the toughest part was it was a different look every night. It was Dwight Gooden one night. Then it was Ron Darling with a splitter the next night. Then it was Sid Fernandez with his funky left handed style. Then it was me. Then it was Bobby O'E to throw in change ups from the left handed side. So. It was a soft lefty. It was a hard righty. You know, it was it was just back and forth every other night, and uh, that gave hitters trouble too. You couldn't get in a groove because you had to you had to face so many different looks and different styles. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating, and and I I know what you're saying. You get in that groove against those power right-handed hitters. Power can strike them out. You got one way to do it, but if you're ping ponging back and forth with he's a contact guy. He's a guy that will give you a good at bat. It, it's, it, it's a completely different mindset on how you go after them. Um, <clears throat> the rules. I know they're kind of old now. <laughs> it's been uh, almost three quarters of a year, but uh, I, for one, was a little, I, I was, I was a skeptic when I heard him come out and I said, you know, 
as a baseball player, I always, we, we kind of pride ourselves on being the only major sport uh, without a pitch clock, <laughs> without a clock in general. So I, but I had an open mind. I said, let's see how it goes. I think it's been great. I hate to, <laughs> I hate to admit I was wrong and a skeptic. I think it's been great. Uh, I think fans love it. I think the players are even loving it on being on the media side. Now, if I've got to watch a ball game, I know it's going to be about two hours and 35 minutes and I can fast forward a lot, a lot quicker. Uh, and I didn't think it, that was going to be the result I had. I, I, I just thought of all the negative stuff like, well, wait a minute. If I've got a pitcher who's, who's laboring in the past, I've been able to come in as a second baseman and, and give you a breather as a pitcher. Uh, what's going to happen if we can't do that? Well, we've all kind of worked it out. You know, the hitters have worked it out. They get in the box. It's it's not that big of a deal. And I think all it all it did was I, I think the the reason that they implemented it was not to change the rules, was just to get us back in the groove of what it was like 50 years ago. Hey, let's just move it along a little bit. I hated that you could only throw over twice. I thought all the great base stealers, that's going to be so easy for them to steal second base now. No, the point was to encourage stealing bases again, to get more action in the game. I think it's done everything uh, they set out to do. Now, the only the only caveat I'll give you is I don't like the eight-second engagement rule as a hitter because I have no counterpoint to your point. As a pitcher, you can play games with me. You can hold, it, hold the ball on me. In the past, I've been able to call timeout and move along. I can't call timeout anymore. So other than that, I think there's going to be a little tweaks to all facets of the new rules, but I think all in all, it's been great. Your take. No, no, you're dead on. Uh, as a hitter, if you've got, you know, you really have to, you have to be aware of the clock without a doubt. Uh, the pitcher's aware. Um, it's, there's a little, obviously there was a little bit of an adjustment period, but if you've got a, a runner on first base, who's a base stealer and you're the hitter in the box, you don't want to get in the box too quickly. Because then you you give the pitcher more seconds to hold the ball and freeze the runner at first. So we're starting to see hitters now that kind of straddle one foot out of the box and wait for the clock to get down to 12, 11, 10 seconds, and then step in so that by the time the pitcher comes set, you got eight seconds left. And that's much less than to be able to, to use to freeze the hitter or the runner. Now, we've seen hitters get in there at the 16-second mark with a runner on first, and I've seen pitchers hold the ball for 10 seconds. And you're right. The hitter's already burned his timeout. You got one timeout per per sequence, and there's nothing you can do. You got to stand there, and the, the the runner gets frozen, and he's trying to steal second. So the the cat and mouse game is is, is still being worked out. The mound visits you get five per game. Those should be zero at the end of every game. To your point, if you're a second baseman and you see a trouble spot, you should be able to burn a mound visit right there. We've got four left. It's the seventh inning. You know. You should be able to do that. I think it, that people are still learning how to use that. It's like, oh, I got a mound visit here. Let's go burn a mound visit. You know, it, 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 it's something that, that that shouldn't be left on the scoreboard. Every game should have zero mound visits left for, for exactly what you're talking about. Don't let the game get away from you. If you read something, something's happening, you're aware of everything. You're aware of the clock. You're aware of how many mound visits are left. You're aware of the situation. The, the heady players – the players that are high concentration that, that anticipate the flow of the game are the ones that are thriving right now that are that are ahead of the curve in terms of using all these little subtleties to 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 kind of slow the game down when you need to when especially in key parts of the game so yes more action um, less dead time part of the problem was is that there's so many more relievers used in games nowadays and they're all power guys and they're all maximum effort guys they took longer to deliver a pitch 
How many times have you seen a reliever that throws 100 miles an hour or 98 miles an hour throw a pitch and walk around the mound, you know, and take his time between every pitch? And, and to me, that that's the biggest difference here is that uh, there's less dead time. Get on the mound, deliver your pitch. If you're a maximum effort guy, you know, maybe you need to get in better condition. Maybe some of these guys, uh, you know, are having a hard time keeping up because they're used to kind of their own little routines and brooding around the mound. Uh, you know, that, that's a thing of the past now. So, and rightly so. I mean, who wanted to watch that all that dead time? You know, reliever throw a pitch, ball one, and then walk around the mound. Yeah, that, that was something that, uh, to me, I, I don't think anybody misses that. Or even a hitter. You didn't even swing the bat. You took a pitch and you step out of the box and you got to do your gloves and you got your routine and you got to, you know, you know, whatever your routine was. You didn't even swing the bat. Get back in the box. Let's go. All that dead time from pitchers and hitters, you know, is something that we're not missing at all. Do you think from a pitcher's perspective over the long haul, 162 games, uh, it's going to wear on certain pitchers and definitely be a detriment, something going forward they're going to have to incorporate into their offseason preparation? Or do you think it, it's really not that big of a deal as far as the swiftness that they have to be willing to work? You know, I talked to a lot of managers and pitching coaches uh, across the league this year, and they're still gathering information. There is some theories that some of the guys are suffering, especially some of the older pitchers that were used to their routines. Um, maybe the conditioning, they need to account for that in conditioning in terms of it's become more uh, more of a cardiovascular effort, right? We used to say that baseball's an you know, it's not an aerobic sport. It's an anaerobic sport. It's quick burst and then a dead time and you can rest. There's a little less of that now. It's becoming more aerobic, I guess, uh, and to in a certain extent for, for, for some pitchers. So, yeah, maybe they got to get out and run some poles again. Maybe a little more cardio, you know, maybe get, control their heart rate a little bit better because they don't have as much downtime between pitches to kind of control their heart. So, yeah, a little bit of that. But I think that, you know, we're a little over halfway through the first year of the rules changes. It certainly seems to favor younger, more athletic players. That's for sure. Both hitters, runners, and pitchers. Talk a little bit about David Cohn and his career. Uh, you know, going through uh, your career and your life, fascinating. Five World Series champions is amazing to me. You know, and I was just at the All-Star game, and I got to catch up with Nelly and, and Tino. And, and I remember I sat there and I said, do you guys realize – how special what you did was, and do you appreciate it? Because guys like me on the other side of the ledger just clawing to try to win one World Series. Now that I'm a little older, removed from the game, 15, 17 years, I look back at, and it's so hard uh, to win a World Series championship or a championship at, at, at the highest level in any sport. You got five of them. Uh, it's amazing to me. You didn't play high school baseball. Um how would they find David Cohn in 2023 if you ain't playing high school baseball? Yeah, you know, they, <laughs> the, yeah, back then, you know, I, I played in summer leagues against college guys. So when I was 15 years old, you know, I grew up in Kansas City, and it was the Big 8 back then, and now it's the Big 12 or whatever it is now. Back then it was, you know, it was Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, uh, Iowa State, you know, all part of the Big 8, Kansas State. And during the summer, a lot of those college players played in an amateur league uh, – and, and use wood bats too, actually. Uh, so you had the option, wood bat or aluminum bat. And I was 15 years old pitching against those guys that were playing in the Big Eight. And I was just holding my own. Barry getting getting it handed to me a lot, but kind of competing, you know, and hanging in there. And, it, you know, scouts would come watch and say, yeah, he's okay. And they'd say, well, he's 16 years old. And they'd go, what? He's 16, you know, and I'm pitching against guys that were 21 and under. 
And uh, I think that probably helped me more than anything. You know, I, I learned I learned how to deal with adversity early on. I learned how to deal with players that were better than me and tougher than me. And they were talking smack on the bench at me. I was just a kid, you know, and I got a pretty good education there early on. I, you know, and so even though I didn't play high school baseball, you know, I played a pretty good summer league in the Midwest. And, uh, you know, by the time uh, I was el- draft eligible, I went to a tryout camp at Royal Stadium, an actual tryout camp where there's like 150, 200 kids there and you get couple of throws off the mound, you know, you show your arm strength and maybe show a slider or here or there, and then you're out. It was like an assembly line, but there was one local scout that saw me. And when I was drafted, I was a relative unknown. I had maybe a partial scholarship offered to the University of Missouri, but after I was drafted, I was drafted third, 74th overall by the Royals. Colleges started to call all of a sudden based on the draft that had never seen me pitch before. And so I started to get some partial scholarship offers, but at that point I'd already signed with the Royals. I, it took me like two days to sign. I, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was like, you, you want me to play? I'm, I'm there. Let's go. Give me the contract. Let's sign it. And I think I signed for like $17,000, I think as a third rounder, I think third round money, money in 1981 is probably closer to 30 or 40 grand back then. I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. I was ready to go. So two weeks after I graduated high school, I was gone in the minor leagues, never looked back. It took me five or six years to make it up to the big leagues finally broke in and uh, got traded to the Mets in New York. And then the rest is, that's the rest of the story. You know, I spent six years with the Mets when that team, 1987, I went to the Mets after the 86 Mets. It was the wildest group, Brett. They, those guys were nuts. They were animals, <laughs> absolute animals and both on and off the field. And I did my best to fit in with those guys. And that's how I broke in with, with the, you know, the, the remnants of the 1986 Mets. Uh, you know, that, that was me. And, uh, yeah, they were the best group of guys. And we were 15 deep after games. Where are we going tonight? Let's go. You know, we're hanging together. We hung in the clubhouse. We drank beer after the games. We went out to the bars. We owned the bars together. We took them over. It was like a pack, you know, a pack mentality. And we were all together. And I can't even tell the truth on some of the stories we had back then. You know, I can't even. Oh, I know. I can't even <laughs> begin to, to, to sort of uh, fess up. But there was some barroom fights, you know, and there, were, there was there was mayhem everywhere. And, uh you know, it was the eighties. It was the 1980s. It was, it was different, you know, and it was the Mets and there was nothing like it. You had two stints, David, in New York, one with the Mets, uh, one with the Yankees. You talk about those years. I've, I've heard the stories and, and that's funny when you say, I can't even be completely honest. That's pretty awesome. But that was the time and that's what it was like. And there wasn't the, could you imagine that those Mets teams and, and, with the internet today, with these iPhones, it doesn't exist. That's why the kids today, they go back to their room and they play video games. Yeah, There's a, there's a, there's a reason to it. That's a, There's a reason for it. Um, you're an all-star in 88. Uh, you lead the league in strikeouts in both 1990 and 91. Uh, 91 was interesting. I read a little uh, snippet on you. I think it's the last game of the season. Punch out 19. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, Philadelphia. I was in a game I – I saw Randy, I saw the big unit my rookie year, 92, punch out 19 against the Rangers, did not come out for the ninth inning. But I, I know games like that, ridiculous. Um, I want to get to Toronto. 92, you go to Toronto, and you win your first of uh, what I mentioned, a ridiculous five World Series championships. But that first one, I always think about that Toronto because it's not only it wasn't just winning it for Toronto. It was kind of like winning it for the country of Canada. 
you know, different than than when you win a World Series in New York, where, yeah, New York City's on fire and it's going crazy and it's the greatest thing in the world. But you're not winning it for the United States of America. It seems with Major League Baseball, whether you're Blue Jay or, you know, Expos never won one, but it, you're winning it for the country. Did you have that kind of sense? We did. You know, it was there was almost a conspiracy theory up there that it's the American sport and they don't want a Canadian team to win it. You know, and some of the longtime baseball fans in Canada were wondering if the, the, the odds were stacked against them or an umpire's call or something would happen. You know, the, the, the conspiracy, you know, they don't want Canada to win. But the, it really was interesting to be a part of that. You know, the Sky Dome back then was sold out every night. They drew over four million fans. There was 50,000 plus every night at the Sky Dome. It's, it's like I've never seen. I mean, there wasn't an empty seat in the house. Uh, I lived in the Sky Dome. I got traded that year. After the trade deadline, you know, Brett, we're coming up on the trade deadline now. Back in 1992, I was traded at the end of August. You know, I cleared waivers. Entire yeah. rosters cleared waivers back in 1992. It was kind of like collusion part two. Owners had a wink-wink. Uh, contracts were dumped. I could have, you know, anybody could have blocked that trade. The Milwaukee Brewers, Bud Selig owned Milwaukee Brewers, could have blocked that trade from from me, from the Mets to the Blue Jays because it was after the trade deadline. And I cleared waivers. Everybody cleared waivers back then. And next thing you know, I've, it's almost September 1st and I'm on the Blue Jays. And it was the beginning of the hired gun. I felt a lot of pressure. You know, you had to come through. I didn't really know my teammates. Only had like five weeks to get to know them. And then I was going to be starting game one or game two. I ended up uh, behind Jack Moore starting game two in their rotation. And when I, the first game I pitched, we were down 1-0 against the A's. It was a, That was the Oakland A's, Tony La Russa. Canseco, McGuire, Carney Lansford, they had a great team. Ricky Henderson, Willie Wilson, they had a great team. Toronto had a hard time getting through them. Oakland kind of had Toronto's number back then. And Jack Morris got blown out of game one at home, and I'm starting game two. And that's probably the best game I ever pitched in postseason, or at least right up there. The most pressure, uh, the biggest game. And, uh, you know, it, it was – well, I, I just remember my eyes were bugging out of my head. I was so nervous for that game and uh, probably drank too much coffee, among other things. So, you know, it was – it was just one of those games, you know, and uh, they, that we won that game too, and that got us back going again. And then, um, you know, we ended up winning that series, finally beating Oakland. That was the big thing to get by Oakland, slay the dragon. The Oakland A's were the dragon for the Blue Jays, and then we beat the, you know, we beat the uh, the uh, the Braves in the World Series. And back then, there was no wild card. Obviously, it was just LC. You went right to the LCS. You won your division. You went to the LCS. You won the LCS. You went to the World Series. Yeah, it's a it's a different world now, you know, and and with the schedule the way it is, I personally, as from a fan standpoint, I I think it's really exciting the way the way it's set up nowadays. Twelve teams get to the postseason, the most in the history of baseball, um, but it keeps cities involved longer. You know, a lot. If you go back to my dad's generation, <clears throat> it's like this stage of the season. <clears throat> there's only five or six cities even interested in baseball. They're already talking about football. Because back then it was two teams wet. You had one playoff and then World Series. So I don't think winning the World Series back then was any easier or harder. It was definitely that 162 meant a lot more. But there wasn't as there there weren't as many landmines once you got to the postseason. Now it's kind of reversed. The 162, uh, not as important. You can kind of get hot late, sneak in, and but then you've got Man, you've got landmines all over the place to get to that World Series. So not easier or harder, but I think for our our society today, just leaves every – there's a lot more interest. You know, 
ballparks are packed, uh, more cities involved. It's it's very cool. But you're right. Back then, it, it, it was a different playoff format for sure. Uh, you win that World Series in Toronto. You 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 go to the the Royals from '93 to '95, back to Toronto, and then and then you get to the to the Yankees in that in that Yankee unbelievable run. Uh, and 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 I talked to the guys that were a part of all those teams. And they said, and we should have won more. And I'm like, you know, that's enough. But I but I realize, you know, you won in '96, and then you won '98, '99, and 2000, 2001. You're right on the. You're right on. You're knocking on the door again. Mariano on the hill. Uh, there, there could have been more. But, but just take me through that run, that group of guys. How special it was Joe Torre at the helm? Uh, kick it off with '96. I just want to touch on each one of those. Yeah, you know, Joe Torre was the right guy at the right time, and and when he was hired by Steinbrenner, uh, the the back page of the New York Post was clueless Joe. He doesn't know what he's getting into. You know, it was a heyday of George Steinbrenner, uh, toughest owner in sports. He was going to get fired. He was like, this is a bad hire. And Joe, he was playing with house money at that point. He didn't care. He was an MVP player. He was a broadcaster. He had already managed for the Cardinals. It, it was for him, this was all gravy. It was another shot for him to, to, to try to get to, to a World Series, which he had never had as a player or a manager. So uh, he didn't take anything seriously. He just was a great buffer. For, for Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner would come in and blow off steam and George would just kind of take it or, or Joe would just kind of take it. He understood how to handle Steinbrenner and he kept that away from the clubhouse and he treated everybody with, he just, you know, I, I guess the best way I could say it, Joe Torrey commanded the respect. He didn't demand it. He didn't have a lot of team meetings, but when he did, they were really effective. He dealt with one-on-one -on -one with you. He'd call you into his office and, and talk to you like a man. And, you know, he just knew how to deal with people. He had great skills at that point. And he handled George. And then all of a sudden, here comes Derek Jeter as a rookie in 1996. And the, the story was is that Steinbrenner didn't think Jeter was ready. So they were going to trade for Felix Fermin from Seattle. And, and Seattle wanted Mariano Rivera in return before we knew who Mariano Rivera was. And Joe Torre talked him out of it. Do not trade you know, Mariano Rivera for Felix Fermin. Let's give this kid a chance to play shortstop. And from that point on, we took off. Derek was uh, – the rookie of the year that year, he was our leadoff hitter. You talk, you know, in, in terms of uh, the roles, shortstop for the Yankees, leadoff hitter. Uh, the guy just led the way. You know, he was ahead of his time in terms of maturity. He wasn't overmatched by the moment. Mariano Rivera became Mariano Rivera in the bullpen. He was lights out that year. Of all the years that Mariano Rivera had as a reliever and the greatest reliever of all time, 1996 might have been his best year because he was a multi-inning reliever. You could bring him in in the fifth, sixth inning. He'd go two or three innings and then hand the ball to John Wetland, who closed that year. And that you know, Mariano pitched almost 100 innings that year, and he was lights out uh, as a reliever. And probably his highest war ranking was that year because of the quantity of the innings. He threw a lot of innings. So uh, that team, that 96 team, set the pace. Uh, we lost in 97 to Cleveland. Cleveland had a great team in those years. You know, the, uh, the Robbie Alomar, Albert Bell, Omar Vizquel, Cleveland Indians. Uh, they were very capable of knocking us off. They had us down 2-1 after knocking us off in 97. and 98, they had us down in the playoffs, two games to one. And then we had a guy named El Duque who came up that year and uh, solidified our rotation. Another perfect piece at the right place at the right time. He beat Cleveland in Cleveland to get the series back to 2-2 in 1998. 
And then we took off from there. Finally got by Cleveland and then steamrolled the Padres in, in the 98 World Series. We swept them. And then 99, it was the Braves again. We were just, we were a well-oiled machine at that point in 1999. And we just rolled over the Braves. We swept them in postseason uh, in 1999. And then 2000 was a tough year. You know, we kind of fell back a little bit. I think we only won like 87 games that year, but got into the playoffs. And that's why, you know, if you're looking at this year compared to the Yankees teams, uh, that 2000 team, you look at the Houston Astros. There's something about them. When they get into the postseason, they kind of know who they are, and they have that postseason experience. So I still say the Astros are the team to beat because of that, but we were that team in 2000 where once we, once we got past the regular season, a kind of a kind of a down year, postseason, we understood, hey, everybody's 0-0. Zero, zero. My batting average is zero. My, my ERA is zero. We understand. We understood that concept better than anyone, and then we just rolled in 2000, rolled right through and beat the Mets in the Subway Series, and we just were very confident in postseason, even though we weren't that good in the regular season. I think we only won 87 games in 2000. So, you know, it was kind of a an up-and-down thing, but the one thing was is when we got to postseason, we knew who we were, we all knew our roles, and we were a very confident team. Uh, and that postseason experience really matters. It's hard to put a number on that. It's hard to quantify from an analytic standpoint. It's more emotional and more of the human element thing, but we have it. The current team today that probably has that is Houston. So I'd still watch out for the Astros in this postseason. I agree with you, too. And, and you, it, when, once you've had that much winning, it is. It's not a. It's not an arrogance. It's a look. It's a. It's a nod amongst teammates. Like, remember last year when we were here and we were down. Remember what happened? It is. It's it. And and I I, I try to put my finger on it and, and explain it to the to the fan listening. It's just something you know. It's an eight. It's not a thing we got to talk about. You know, for yeah. for teams like you guys that right. you know you know what happened and we've been down and out way more than we are right now. And what did we do? So it's that, and you take the field and believe me, being an opponent uh, of those Yankee teams, I felt it on the other side too. Like, don't take these guys. We got them. We got them right now. Remember where we had them before <clears throat> and the ghost came out at, at old Yankee stadium. Well, it can happen again. And, and as a, as an opponent, <clears throat> don't think that doesn't go through our mind. And, and that was kind of the, <clears throat> a part of your mystique and why those teams were so great and why it was such a special time. Anyone stand out to you uh, amongst the five? I, I hate to keep saying it amongst the five, anyone particularly special? Well, you, you, you always remember the first one, you know, the, the special one, but the 1998 team was the team for me. I mean, you know, it was, it was a steamrolled year. You know, we ended up, at the end of the World Series, we'd won 125 games. We were 125 and 50 after winning 114 games during the regular season. But then when we got to postseason, we all knew that wouldn't matter unless we closed the deal. You know, we, we, we saw that last year with the Dodgers, who had a big, big season in the regular season, 110, 111 wins, whatever they finished up last year. We saw it with Seattle when they won 116 games. As You're well aware of that. Uh, that Seattle team, Wow one of the best teams I've ever seen, Ichiro, you know, coming over, lighting it up. And yet, you know, it just didn't work in postseason. You know, you got knocked out um, for whatever reasons, short series, crap shoot, no postseason play, maybe a little uncertainty, uncertainty. You know, I, I've heard it described this way. If, if you're a veteran player and you have postseason success and you're starting a game the next day, whether you're a position player or a starting pitcher, 
you're going to go to bed that night and you're going you're gonna to think, man, I'm going to have a great game tomorrow. And you're going to put your head on your pillow and you're going to sleep like a baby. And the other side, the guy who hasn't had any postseason experience is going to say the same thing to himself at night. Hey, I'm going to have a great game tomorrow. And you put your head on your pillow and you toss and turn all night. You're not really sure, right? You're not quite so sure. The other guy who knows, yeah, I slept like a baby last night. I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm fully confident. The guy, yeah, the guy's confident, but he hasn't done it before. So you know what? I didn't sleep so well last night. You know, I'm a little uncertain. So that's one way to put it. I've heard it expressed that way in big games, you know, World Series, Super Bowls, whatever. I mean, you know, you know, you played in a lot of big, big games, Brett. You know what that feeling is the night before and how confident you are and whether you're really sure or not. Yeah, very cool. Man, I'm, I'm just looking at you, some of the some of your personal accolades. And 98, you won 20 games. 94, uh, Cy Young Award winner. You're a five-time All-Star, five-time World Series champ. And uh, touch on the perfect game. 1999, I know it's well heralded. Heralded at Michael K. breaks it out every year. Every year on the <laughs> anniversary, we talk about it. It's, it's Cody's day. But pretty darn special, especially doing it where you did it. That's the key. I mean, when you have the history of the Yankees, uh, it, it just, it just makes it all the much better. I mean, you know, Domingo Herman just threw one in Oakland for the Yankees. He became the fourth pitcher to do it. Uh, but mine was done. It was Yogi Bear a day. You know, Yogi had a big beef with, with George Steinbrenner for 15 years. He never, he didn't go to the Yankee stadium. He was fired as manager of the Yankees by the general manager over the phone. And Yogi never forgave George Steinbrenner for that. I think it was only like 15 or 16 games into the regular season, too. It was early in the season. George fires Yogi. Yogi said, that's fine. You want to fire me, but come look me in the face. Look me in the eye and tell me yourself. So he never forgave George Steinbrenner for that, or at least for 15 years he didn't. Susan Waldman kind of got them together, reconciled the, the situation. They planned Yogi Bear a day. That was my day. You know, Yogi and Carmen Barrow were riding around in a convertible Thunderbird. The crowd was going nuts for Yogi. There's nobody like Yogi Berra. He was so beloved. Uh, Don Larson was in the house who threw his perfect game during the World Series in 1956, the only perfect game in a World Series. He throws out the first pitch. Yogi Berra grabs Joe Girardi's glove, and we're both standing right by these guys as, as the first pitch happens. It's almost like Yogi blessed, you know, Joe Girardi's glove, handed it back to Joe Girardi, they laughed, they went off, and then next thing you know, you know, we start mowing them down, and it's Yogi's day. It's Yogi Berra day. You know, this is not supposed to happen this way, and, and, and it did, and I was facing a Montreal Expos team. Nobody in that lineup had ever faced me before. There were zero at-bats off of anybody in that lineup, and if you know the Expos back then, they had a couple of really good players. They had Vladimir Guerrero Jr. on that team, or Vladimir Guerrero Sr. on that team, Jose Vidro, Brett Fulmer. There were some pretty good players on that team. Orlando Cabrera was a shortstop, but they all were free swingers. And, you know, I say this, you know, we all talk about wind currents, wind swirling. For some reason that day, it was kind of a, it was a hot day, but it was also, it rained. There was a rain delay and there was wind kind of swirling at the stadium. And it was one of those days where my slider was like a Frisbee. I don't know if there's crosswinds at home plate, but sometimes when you throw a ball into the wind, the ball moves more, it'll break more. You know, I used to love pitching a candlestick park the old in San Francisco because of the wind. My ball broke like a Frisbee. My slider broke like 10 feet. And that day at Yankee Stadium, my ball was just making a left-hand turn all day. I was changing arm angles. I was throwing nothing but Frisbee after Frisbee. And they kept swinging and swinging. And that was their MO. They'd never seen me before. They swung the bat. And I just kept throwing it. They kept swinging at it. And 88 pitches later, 
you know, a lot of times, Brett, I threw 88 pitches in about four innings, you know, three, two on everybody, you know, trying to nibble, you know, that day I threw 88 pitches in nine innings and uh, it was Yogi Berra day. Yogi's number was eight. There was a big number eight behind home plate to honor him for his day. You know, I don't know if, if you believe in baseball gods or not, but after the game, I remember thinking there's something, there's something going on here. How did that just happen? Pretty awesome. Great career. Uh, and, and now you're, you're, uh, kicking butt Sunday night baseball. You're doing the yes network. You get to see this Yankee team. And I got to ask you before I let you go, uh, Obviously, I have a little bit of an interest in the Yankees just because, you know, it's my brother and I like to see him do well. I try to look at it um, very professionally when asked to to break down the Yankees. It's not, oh, it's Aaron's team. No, I, I've got to be honest and, and tell him what I see. When I see him in person, you know, we, we more talk about the kids and how are the kids doing. And, and I stay away from baseball unless it gets brought up. And if he wants my advice, I'll give him my advice. Sometimes he takes it. Sometimes he doesn't take it. But But that's... You know, I'm always I, I kind of feel weird, like I, I want to say something to him, but I don't, you know, so I, I got that brotherly thing back and forth. But I have a huge respect for, for him, what he's doing. I have a huge respect for for the Yankees franchise and how tough it is in the city of New York. You watch this team every day. What do you think? They got a chance this year. It's a tough division. Orioles are kind of took us by surprise I, at the beginning of the season i thought orioles it's a feel-good story it's nice they haven't had any success recently they've taken over the rays the rays have kind of come back to earth uh yankees are in last place and they're making a big deal of that but it's not like they're in yank in last place and below 500 they'd still be top of the division if they're in the central they're two and a half out of the wild card at this stage uh nine out in the division i think the division's kind of tough not not the nine games, but to have to piggy to, to jump over four teams is is pretty a re- remarkable feat. But two and a half out of the wild card, judges missed a lot. For me, that's the whole key to that team. The, I watch that lineup day in and day out. When Aaron judges in it, I think with the exception of Otani, uh, and this is just my perspective, with the exception of Otani, nobody's more important to a lineup in the game in either league than Aaron Judge, and he's been missing for quite a while now. He has, and it's such a, uh, an unfortunate injury, too. And, you know, on the inside of his big toe, his right big toe, and that's, as you know, as a hitter, that's what you're pivoting on, your back foot. And that's a size 17. That's a big ligament that he tore in that big, big toe in that size 17. So you got to pivot on that. you got to roll on that. And he's kind of a back leg hitter anyway. He's kind of a, a turn, sit, sit and spin kind of a hitter rather than a, a stride or rather old school guy that really kind of has a little more sway in his swing. So he really relies on that back foot. So that that's just really unfortunate. He's going to have to play through pain. He will. He's going to come back and, and try to do it. We won't know until he does on how much that, that really impacts him or what shape that toe's in. So uh, a really difficult spot, but he is that important. You know, for me, the Yankees, you know, and yeah, I think Aaron is a, a fantastic baseball man for today's game. He's so level. His teammates love him. Um, you know, he has the respect of that clubhouse and that's a, you know, as you know, Brett, that that's the number one indicator as he lost the clubhouse. Do they respect him? They do very much uh, still to this day. Um, he's got them. They play for him. And, and that's the first thing you look at. Uh, they're short. They don't have outfielders. You know, they, it, it just is what it is. I love Isaiah Kiner Falefa. I think he's a high quality guy. Great guy. Great super utility guy. He's gotten way too many starts in the outfield. He's not an outfielder. You know, he's converted. He's done an admirable job of learning on the fly how to play the outfield. But 
if you've got to start him in the outfield all those games, then something's wrong. You know, you're short. Aaron Hicks was supposed to be that guy. They had to give up on him and pull the plug. And they had three years left on that deal. So, uh, you know, Oswaldo Cabrera is a nice young player, super utility guy, struggled offensively this year, never played outfield in the minor leagues. How many games did we see this year with both of them starting in the outfield? You're just short of outfielders. Uh, their best prospects in the outfield are a year away, double A, A ball. They've got some prospects coming, but they need outfielders. So can the Yankees make it this year? Yes, they can. You got to get Aaron Judge back, find out what you got. And you need to find an outfielder at the trade deadline. You know, I don't know if Cody Bellinger is going to be available or not. He would be a perfect fit, even as a rental, maybe even long term if he's all the way back. But you got to find some outfielders somewhere, some real outfielders, guys that were trained to play the outfield. So that's that's the shortness right there in and of itself. And then, of course, when you look at some of the veteran players, are they regressing? DJ LeMayhew, do you believe in his track record? Starting to look better lately. You know, you kind of bet on guys' track records, but then you kind of wonder, wait a minute, is this – is age capping, you know, is age catching up? Are they starting that, you know, that analytical decline phase of their career, which we all go through at some point or another? John Carlos Stanton, you know, where is he in, in his career arc? And can you keep him healthy as well? Uh, the Josh Donaldson thing was a nightmare. It just didn't work out. That was a big bet they placed and spent a lot of money on that. Just did not work out. So, you know, it, what are you going to do? You need those guys to play. You have to trust their track records and you need some help in the outfield. Brian Cash going to be interesting to see who we can pull out, pull out of the trade deadline, but you're right. It starts with Aaron judge at the top and two and a half out. Yes, absolutely. They can get into the postseason. If the Yankees get in the postseason, you're just starting Garrett Cole, Garrett Cole in game one. And if you have Carlos Rodon kind of get his game going again and be who he's supposed to be, that could be pretty formidable. And then Nestor Cortez starting a game three. I wouldn't want to face the Yankees in postseason if they got a real left fielder and you've got Aaron Judge back and Harrison Bader's running around center field being a gold glove. Okay, now we're talking. Now, now we got a chance. You got to get there. But if they can solve left field and get Aaron Judge back, then then yes, they do have a real legitimate chance. I laugh because the critique is so heavy and you hear it in New York on a daily basis. And I'm, you just broke down some of the uh, some of the positions, the pitching situation, the hitting situation. If if you're honest and you look at that roster, I remember a year ago I talked to my brother. You know, we had a phone call. I said, "Aaron, baseball it, it doesn't always come out this way. The best team doesn't always win." I said, "But on paper, the Houston Astros is a better baseball team than you have right now." So I'm pulling for you. I'm your brother. I got your back. But if asked. If I'm putting my money down, I'm going to bet on the Houston Astros. They're just better than you, just the way it is. Right now, I look at that team. The fact that they're where they are, I think they've survived pretty good with all those scenarios you touched on, the Donaldson situation, LeMayhew having a rough half, Rizzo starting off great, and it just fell off a cliff. He got four hits the other day. Their shortstop, Volpe, I think he's going to be a good player. The other day when, when we met up in Anaheim, he's hitting fifth. Said if Volpe's hitting fifth, you're in trouble right now. You mentioned uh, Kiner Falefe. Bader's been hurt in and out. Stanton, Stanton's a he's he's a what's he? He's an avatar. I, I can't really comment on Stanton because he <laughs> yeah. does stuff. I watch him hit, and I just say I can't believe it. Then all of a sudden he hits eight home runs in a week. But the pitching staff, that bullpen is has been great, but. Nestor Cortez has been out, what, six weeks now. Uh, Severino came back. He he looked great at the beginning. 
he had a he had a rough streak, you know, and you expect that you expect more out of Severino. Rodon, you gave all the money to. He's had a rough comeback. So uh, a lot of ifs. I, I think they're lucky right now to be sitting in the position they're at. But get all these things right in a perfect world. I'm with you. I think they could be formidable once the postseason comes, if they you, get there. You could argue that Aaron has done his best managerial job this year, you know, because of all, all the things you just said, all the the decline phases of some players, the struggles, the injuries, everything all put together. And look, they're still above 500. They're right there. So, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to put your finger on how much a manager is really worth, right? You know, how many games you're, you're better off of because of what a manager did, but it's, it's very subjective, you know, keeping the clubhouse together, having the respect of your players, but also maneuvering. You're right. I mean, it's been a different leadoff hitter every night. Searching for a hot hitter to put in a leadoff hole every night. It's something different. You know, we've, we've, we've seen uh, Oswald, Oswald Peraza lead off a couple of games, just got called up. Let's, let's try him. Let's try him at leadoff because Aaron's just looking for somebody that's a good hitter in that spot, not your prototypical leadoff hitter that's like a Ricky Henderson, somebody with some speed and some pop. You know, it's like, no, I'm, I'm searching for a body. I'm searching for anybody right now. So, in that sense, Aaron's done a really good job this year with what he's had to work with. And we'll see how it ends up. We'll see if there's a big finish in, in store for the Yankees. It's, they're certainly capable of it because their bullpen has been solid and because Garrett Cole's having a Cy Young award-winning type season, or at least he's in that mix. Uh, you know, you, you still feel like if Aaron Judge is Aaron Judge, they're going to have a chance. They, they can do it if they get a little bit of a hot streak going, but you know, there's a lot of baseball left. You know, I saw the Mets blow a seven-game lead with 17 games left uh, with Willie Randolph as their manager years ago. You know, 10, 15 years ago, the Mets had a seven-game lead to go with 17 games, and they blew it. So you, 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 we're just hitting the dog days, and it's going to get really hot here. It's going to be 98 degrees in Baltimore this weekend. We haven't even hit the dog days yet. You watch how the injuries start to happen. People start to falter. We're getting through. We're just entering into that dog day phase of August, and then you get to September, and then you find out who's left then. There's a lot of time left. Well, David Cohn, I, I appreciate you coming on the on the podcast. This is a lot of fun catching up. Uh, continu- continued success, I, like I said, I, I really enjoy in a in a time in a time in baseball where I don't enjoy watching just anybody. I really I do really enjoy your commentary. I think you do a great job, and and that whole crew. And we'll see. You know, maybe I'll maybe I'll catch up with you down down the street and and wish you all the best. And, and for those of you out there listening or watching the Boone Podcast. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll catch you next time.